Our scripture reading today is from John 3, 1 through 15. This is found on page 887 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Thank you for being with us this morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm really glad that you have joined us this morning. Uh, to celebrate and worship. But one of the reasons we say, uh, you know, maybe if you're newer with us, we always say that phrase back. Uh, this is the word of the Lord, and we all respond, thanks be to God, because we recognize that God's word spoken to us is the source of, of life. It's the, where we encounter Jesus, who is the word of life. And so we just always acknowledge that the God's, the God's word to us um, is a gift. And so that's Maybe you've wondered, why do, we, why do we respond in that way? Because we just acknowledge the gift that it is, and we are always so thankful for that. And so as we continue now uh, worshiping together, let me pray as we um, enter into a time of reflection in the sermon on this passage that we just heard read. Father, one of the things that is so true as it shines through in this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus is that without the Spirit, without the new life that your Spirit brings— we can't even see the kingdom of God. So we pray afresh in this moment that your spirit would be at work in each of us and as your community gathered together that we might behold Jesus in his kingdom today. We pray this in his name and by the power of the spirit who unites us to him in faith. Amen. Are you a Christian? I guess probably many of us would answer yes to that question this morning. If we're here in this space, 
yes, I'm, I'm a Christian. Why else would I have gotten up on a Sunday morning when I could have been doing a lot of other things and come to a church building and gathered with other people who call themselves Christians? But like, yes, I'm a Christian. Um, but if someone asked you, what is a Christian and how does someone know they are Christian? I wonder what you would say in response to that. Or I mean, even just think through, if you were to ask a neighbor, a friend, a classmate, a coworker, what is a Christian? I, I wonder what answer you might get back from them. I mean, maybe you'd have an answer from them that'd be something like, oh, a Christian is someone who goes to church. Uh, or a Christian is someone who reads their Bible a lot and prays. Or a Christian, maybe they have more of a, have had a negative experience with Christians. Oh, Christians are, are hypocrites. Or Christians are self-righteous. Or, um, or maybe, maybe they give kind of more of a political. Oh, a Christian is someone who's politically uh, conservative, who votes uh, in a certain way. A Christian is a good person. A Christian is someone who was, uh, you know, baptized in the church. You might get a lot of answers to that question. But all I'm curious this morning is what would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond to that question? What is a Christian? And Jesus actually gives us an answer to that question this morning in this passage in the Gospel of John. And the answer, I think, is more shocking and more counterintuitive, more subversive, and even more offensive than we imagine. Even if we've been Christians for a long time. And, and maybe you're here this morning, you, you, to answer that first question, you would say, Bill, I'm not a Christian. In fact, I just, I'm visiting with someone. Um, my parents asked me to come. And yeah, I, I, I have deep doubts um, about all of this. Um, so wherever you're at this morning, I hope if you would consider yourself a Christian that you gain a depth of insight into what it means. If you're not, pray that you would have a better understanding of what Jesus answers that question, uh, how he answers that question, not just our broader culture. And one of the unique things about the Gospel of John in particular is that in this account, we get a lot of conversations with Jesus one-on-one with other people. So there's four Gospel accounts in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have a lot of moments where you see Jesus teaching a large crowd, as does John in his, you know, the Sermon on the Mount or other places. But one of the unique things about John and his gospel is that you get these kind of encounters, these extended conversations between Jesus and just one other person. So we have Nicodemus. In a few weeks, we're going to look at his uh, encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's almost like we just kind of get to eavesdrop on these conversations. And again, we don't know exactly uh, how John composed his gospel and all the, the kind of the mechanism that he went about to do that. But I almost imagine like he's sitting down with Nicodemus. He's sitting down with the Samaritan woman and saying, tell me about that conversation that you had with Jesus. And then recounting that moment to him as he's crafting this account to help us to believe in Jesus as, as they did, as they came to know and treasure him. And so as we listen in on this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus today, we're going to learn why the new birth is necessary, this language of new birth, how it's possible, and sort of what are some signs, or how, do, how might we know if we have it? So, so what, basically what is it, uh, why, why is it necessary, how, do we, how is it possible, and how might we know if we've experienced it? So turn with me, if you haven't already, John chapter 3, again, AA7 in your pew Bible, um, or if you just type John numeral 3 into any web browser, you will find a number of websites that will pull up that text for you. 
And when we turn to John chapter 3, we find Nicodemus talking late at night in the cover of darkness. And John tells us this in in John 1, or John chapter 3, verse 1 here. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night, which is significant. So in John's gospel, if you even remember back to the very beginning, as we looked at some of the themes in the prologue, there are this, this idea of, of darkness and light, day and night, are really key in John's gospel. And they are more, so when John tells us here that, that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and Nicodemus is coming to him at night, it's more than just, I think, a historical detail. Hey, by the way, this conversation took place at night. But it's a picture that Jesus is coming to Nicodemus and that Nicodemus is in a place of spiritual darkness, that he does not understand all that he thinks he understands. So he came to him at night, and then he continues, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now these signs, uh, we saw the first one of those kind of signs or miracles that Jesus did at the wedding of Cana. Probably Nicodemus wasn't there, but maybe the word has spread about that. Also, the last week we looked at where Jesus goes into the temple and clears out the temple. So Jesus is beginning to gain somewhat of reputation, and he's doing these signs, and Nicodemus recognizes that there's something unique about him. Now, in Nicodemus' statement there, that we know you are a teacher come from God, is there's, a, there's an assumption, and it also seems like there's a, a question embedded in that. The assumption is that as a sort of teacher of Israel, as a Pharisee, I, uh, God is on my side, I'm on God's side, and I'm able to discern rightly who and what is from God. So that's his operating assumption, which Jesus is going to challenge in just a moment. But it also seems like there's an implied question that Nicodemus never actually gets to ask, it seems like he's going to follow this up with, and so are you, who are, are you a prophet? Are you, kind of like they did with John the Baptist, are you the one that we should expect? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? But Nicodemus never gets his question out, because Jesus, as he so often does in the Gospels and in our lives, has something completely different in mind, and a different place he's going to go. And so Jesus actually challenges Nicodemus' very sense that he's equipped to know something about Jesus and his kingdom at all. And he says in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, just a quick aside on that language of truly, truly, because we're going to hear it a lot more in John's gospel. We heard it once before already at the end of John chapter 1 in a conversation with Nathaniel. But this is a pretty profound statement, because what this, I mean, depending on the version that you're reading, sometimes they they say it as amen, amen, truly, truly. Uh, Sometimes uh, if they try to bring across like the meaning, it might say, "I, I tell you the truth. But the idea here is that Jesus is defining what is true and false that he has the authority and the power to be able to say, this is truth. And we know later on he's going to say, I am truth. He's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this is, he's claiming the authority of God to say these things are true. No one else sort of added that on to their, their statements. This is the true truth that I am defining what is really true. And you know what, Nicodemus, what is true is that you must be born again. Now, I don't know exactly what comes to your mind when you hear the language of born again. Because that's language that's used in popular culture, and so maybe you have a negative association with that language. I don't know. Maybe it brings back a a good memory of of an experience of, of coming to faith in your life. 
But I think what's fascinating is that the first person to ever hear Jesus say, you must be born again, is the exact opposite type of person that we expect needing new birth. So Tim Mackey, who is one of the the founders of the Bible Project, if you're familiar with that, they do great videos explaining Bible texts and podcasts. Tim actually was working on this idea of born again and and looked in the, uh, they're out in Portland, Oregon, looked in the Portland newspaper there and just kind of searched, you you can search these databases of newspaper stories, how is the language of born again used in the paper? And we actually had one of our pastors here in Kansas City do that same research and it matched up almost exactly here in Kansas City Star, that usually that language is used in the media to talk either about someone who's kind of a rock star persona, a very public persona, who sort of has has lived a a kind of a wild life who gets religion and and changes up their life. So you may think of of Justin Bieber or someone like that who had kind of this this life, this career, this big public, and then they they get religion, they come to some kind of faith, and and they they go public about that. They had a born-again experience. Or it's used to describe people who are typically white conservative Christians who have a certain voting um, and social stance, conservative social stance on issues like abortion or gay marriage or other religious liberty issues. They'll be referred to as born again Christians in the newspaper. So okay, here's what's fascinating. Nicodemus already has religion. Like he's about as religious as a person as you're going to get. So he's not someone who needs to get religion. He's not a wild, living, rebellious, partier type. He has religion. He's an incredibly religious person. And he's also very socially conservative. Uh, there were different groups at the time of Jesus, and some of them were, even this is a bit of anachronism to use these categories, but more theologically liberal or theologically conservative. Nicodemus is in the conservative group. So when Jesus says to him, you must be born again, he doesn't fit the kind of person, like the media now would peg him as someone who is born again. But Jesus says, you don't have it, Nicodemus. There's something you do not have. So what is it and why is it necessary? Why is the new birth necessary? Because Jesus tells us in essence here, through his conversation with Nicodemus, that there is a kind of life that we don't have and we can only get from him. While we may be physically alive, biologically alive, that there is a spiritual life that we lack. That spiritually we are all sort of living weekend at Bernie's, right? That we may look alive on the outside, right? Someone may look alive. They, they may look like they are a Christian. They may go to church. They may pray. They may give. They may serve. They may be a good person. But actually, they spiritually have no life. They're not actually alive at all. You've got to swat the flies off of them, right? And this, by the way, too, is why you can have, so one of the, the, the things that often happens when you talk to people who aren't Christians is like, you know what, like my, my next door neighbor who's a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist, they, they actually live a better life than a lot of the Christians I know. Like they're more generous, they, they're more involved in the community, they, they seem like they're actually better parents. 
which betrays a misunderstanding of what it is to be a Christian. Christians are not people who have their lives all together figured out. Now, we ought to all be growing and, and, and becoming the kinds of people that we ought to be in Christ, but the, the, the foundation of that is not externally living a good life, but actually, have you been made alive? Jesus' question is, you must be born again. This is a statement, have you been born again? That is the core reality. A few years ago, back in 2019, when we like, went to conferences and stuff, um, I heard Tim Keller speak on this passage. And I love what he said about this particular part of this conversation with Nicodemus. And he says this, he says, to be born again does not mean that you need more morality and religion in your life. In fact, being born again is a challenge to morality and religion. It's not like Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and saying, I see you have all the this morality and religions, and you, you know, you're about three-fourths of the way there, Nicodemus, and if you just have a few kind of spiritual vitamins, supplements, then you're going to make it all the way to heaven. Like, you, you're, you're basically there. Now, he's looking at Nicodemus, and you have all the religion and morality in the world, Nicodemus. You, are, you have mastered that. And you know what? You still must be born again. None of it counts when it comes to being made alive. I was trying to think of, of how, to, how to put this. It's, it's almost like it's a category mistake to say, well, look at how moral I am. When you're thinking about how do I enter the kingdom of God to the, the, the new life that Jesus offers, it's sort of like saying, well, look at all my good works. Now let me into heaven. It's kind of like asking the question, how high is yellow? It's a category mistake. It, it's like asking... Okay, you know, we got weekend of burning you guys. How many, how many push-ups does Bernie need to do to be made alive? It doesn't work. He's not alive. Like, he's not doing push-ups. Like, he, that's, that's, it's, it's the wrong question to ask. How many jumping jacks does he need to do to, to be made alive again? He's dead. He can't do anything to be made alive again on his own. And this is the story of reality as the Bible tells it, is that every one of us as a human being, while we may be physically alive, actually lacks a key kind of life. That at the very beginning, when the first humans, Adam and Eve, were in relationship with God, when they rebelled against him, they actually cut themselves off from spiritual life. So what that basically means is every one of us is a cut flower, right? If you, if you trim a flower off of the stem and, and you put it into a vase, you go to Trader Joe's or wherever, and you can buy a, a you know, bouquet of flowers. It's incredibly beautiful, right? But those flowers are dead. Like, they are dead. And for a while, if you keep them in some water, maybe put a little fertilizer in there, like, they'll stay blooming for a little while, but they are dead. And every one of us is that way. We're cut flowers. We may be incredibly beautiful, may offer incredible beauty to the world, but we are dying. And that bloom will fade and fall off and the leaves will wither and we are dead. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. you think you're this teacher of Israel and you have, but you're not alive. 
But Jesus offers us here, he says there's actually hope of becoming alive again. That we can be connected to the source of life again. And and he uses a profoundly uh, feminine, female metaphor to talk about how you access this. He says you must be born again. You have to actually be reborn. You have to have a new birth. Now, oftentimes people will look at the Bible and point to this book and, and say that this is a critique of often people who are not Christians of the Bible. So this is a really, it's a really patriarchal book. It's a really male-centered book. It's a really androcentric book. And it's true that, you know, the people who first received the Bible were in very patriarchal kinds of cultures, right? When you think about the ancient Near East, when you think about the Greco-Roman world, these were patriarchal, you know, largely male-centered cultures. But there's so many moments in the biblical story where God transcends those kind of cultural boundaries and offers us a view of humanity that is both profoundly honoring of men and women. And this is one of those moments. I mean, Jesus could have put to, picked an agricultural metaphor here. He could have picked a, a, a military metaphor here, which would have been much more male-dominated spaces. But he says, no, when I'm going to define what it is to have salvation— picking a profoundly feminine metaphor of, of birth, of giving birth. And Nicodemus takes him super literally. Verse four, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? All right, so Nicodemus here, he's either dense, like he's just super dense, or he's almost, and I, I think this is more likely because Nicodemus seems to be a very intelligent person. He's almost kind of mocking Jesus. Come on, like, really? What do you mean born again? I'm not going back into my mom and being born again? Are you crazy? What, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? Which brings us to the question of, yeah, how is this possible? It's necessary because spiritually we are dead. But how is it possible? And Jesus goes on and he explains more in verses four through eight, uh, or five through eight here. He says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, there's that language again. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, just a moment, we'll talk about exactly what that means, why water and spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is every, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Jesus right now is, is not introducing something new, but rather he's echoing the theme from page one of our Bibles, that life comes when the Spirit of God is present. Right, so if you look back on page one of your Bible, Genesis chapter one, if you like open it up, the very first page of your Bible, and you look at Genesis chapter one, verse two, the second verse you get in your Bible, what does it say? It says this, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that image, it, the, the hovering image, is it's like a a mother bird hovering over the nest as the eggs are beginning to hatch, bringing, encouraging this life to come out. The Spirit is there bringing life. Now you flip over to page two of your Bible, just turn one more page over, and you find in Genesis 2, you get the zoomed in account of how, how God is making human, Adam, 
from the, from the dust. And he breathes his breath, God's breath, his rock, his spirit into him. He becomes a living being. That where the spirit of God is, there is life. And again, Jesus is telling Nicodemus here that unless you're born of the water and the spirit, unless you have this new life experience that you are spiritually dead, that the spirit actually has to come again and recreate you. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about who we are in Christ is new creations, that there has to be a new creation that happens in each one of us. And this language, again, is not fresh, which is why Jesus says to him, you're a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. Like, you should know this if you know your Bible. That's what he says to Nicodemus. You're a Bible scholar. You should know this, because in Ezekiel, which is one of those Old Testament prophetic books, actually, I think it's one of the most crazy and I mean, just not, like, it, it, there's very vivid imagery in, uh, all over the place in, uh, in Ezekiel. So sometimes if you want to just like, I want to read a book of the Bible, it's just going to blow my imagination. Ezekiel's one of them. But there's this great place in Ezekiel where he's talking about this promise of someone who's going to come and bring new life to Israel, the life that they need. And listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, it's going to be on the screen. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Do you see where Jesus is getting this water language with water and the Spirit? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols and I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel is saying this you know, hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. That's why he's saying, this is, this is coming true in me, Nicodemus, that I'm going to give you the gift of the spirit of new life that's going to make you alive and you're going to be cleansed from your sin and it's going to be dealt with profoundly and finally and fully in me. The new birth is a gift. It is the work of the spirit. Again, this is what Jesus' point is here. And using this metaphor of new birth, it's like we do not do this to ourselves. This is a gift, the new life that we have. We access it by faith, but Paul is so clear in, in the book of Ephesians that even faith is a gift. All right, so the Spirit is the one who convinces us of our sin and misery, who enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, who renews our will so that we can respond to the good news of the gospel. He is the one who makes us alive so that we can even begin to receive this new life that we have in Jesus. Just as you did nothing to be born, you can do nothing to be reborn. Matthew Barrett explains that we so often miss this. He says, unfortunately, even the most well-meaning Christians today can get this miracle backward. We think the new birth is something we must do, but that misses the miracle of it all. It also misses the meaning of the metaphor. Birth is something that happens to us, not something that we accomplish which brings us to the question then, okay, if this is something that happens to me, how do, how do I know that the new birth has happened to me? How do I know that the Spirit has made me alive and, and given me the ability to respond in faith and I've, I've come to trust and know and treasure Jesus and, and actually been made alive by him? How do I know that? Because it, the story looks different for people. And I, 
I, I think this is, I've often thought about this in, in the story of how my dad came to be a follower of Jesus versus how I came to be a follower of Jesus. I think especially when we read a passage like this in the language of being born again, it calls to mind often like this really dramatic moment in your life, right? That it is that rock star moment where I, I was living this life of, of utter darkness and disaster and everything and I hit rock bottom and then I was born again. But like what if that's not your, what if that's not your story? What if you grew up in a family who really loved Jesus. And from the moment that you were, can remember, they were taking to church and, and you know what? You, you actually didn't hate it. You actually, you loved it. And, and you came to really treasure Jesus as the person who could rescue you, the only person who could rescue you. And so you look back and you're like, I, well, I don't, I don't necessarily know when, when did I become alive? And, and that's where I think my, my dad's story is helpful because my dad grew up in, in a Catholic church and by the time he was out of Catholic high school, he just didn't want anything to do with it, didn't want anything to do with the church, didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And then he's in college and the friend shares the gospel with him in the college library and he can tell you the story, like he knows the time of day and the date when his friend Pat Bowden shared the gospel with him and he came alive. He's like, I walked into the library one person, I walked out that day a different person. Like profound transformation in a moment and he knows the moment. But that's not my story because by the time uh, I was like, you know, an infant, I think at that time. So all I ever remember was going to a church that I loved, being told about the good news of Jesus in a way that was compelling to me. I remember praying a prayer at like four years old. I actually have a memory like of kneeling with my mom and dad in, in my bedroom and, and praying a prayer. But I also have this really powerful moment of like walking with Jesus in kind of the summer in between my sophomore and junior of high school where I was really struggling with a lot of doubt about my salvation and whether Jesus loved me and if I was gonna actually go to heaven and all the, I had all these kind of existential questions and I remember reading Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that like flipped a light switch for me and, and this Bible that I knew a lot of facts and information about like came alive to me and I couldn't put it down. So I often then look back, especially in college, like, well, when, when did I become a Christian? Was it at age four when I prayed a prayer? Was it at age 16 or whatever that I was when, when I had that moment in high school? Was it sometime after that, sometime in between that? I, I, I really wrestled with that for a long time because I was in a, a context in college too where it was, kind of like you, it was important that you knew when, you, when did you trust Jesus? When did you become a Christian? I was like, I don't, here are some moments. And this analogy was always really helpful to me if that's been more of your experience, that you didn't have this, like, you know, night and day kind of, you lived this one life and totally transformed the next day kind of moment. And as imagine you're driving to Colorado. We like to go out to Rocky Mountain National Park as a family. You're driving to Colorado. If I'm the one doing the driving, I know when we enter Colorado, right? The GPS comes on and says, welcome to Colorado. And you see the colorful Colorado sign. And people are pulled over to the side, taking you know, the picture by the sign. And so it's like, I know that moment. Okay, we crossed the state line, we're in Colorado. But what if Rachel's driving, what if my wife's driving, or you know, the kids are, what if, what if one of us is asleep in the car when we cross the state line into Colorado? So then we get to Rocky Mountain National Park, we wake up, get out of the car, it's like, oh no. I don't know when we entered the state. Do we need to go back? I'm not sure. Are we really in Colorado? I don't remember when we crossed in. It's like, no, look around. The mountains, the moose, like we're in Estes Park, but we are here. 
Like knowing the moment, <laughs> the fact that like, oh, you didn't know when we crossed the state line doesn't change the fact that you are in Colorado now and that's what matters. The, the, whenever I have people wrestle with, I'm not sure when I became a Christian, actually that doesn't really matter as much as like, who are you trusting right now? If you're trusting Jesus in this moment today, as we're sitting here, then that's all that matters. So we don't have to get hung up on, yeah, I, what, what, what date was it? When did that actually happen? I think there is a moment where we move from life to death, but we don't always know and be able to pinpoint, well, that was when it happened. What matters, are you trusting Jesus with everything now? And how do you know if you are? Well, I think there's a couple things. I think one of the most profound ways that we know if we're really trusting Jesus right now, though, is actually to look at the moments when we sin. Because even as Christians, right, we, we aren't magically sin-free. We still wrestle. So how do you respond to those moments when you blow it? Like, I'm not going to yell at my kids again, and you do. I'm not going to look at pornography again, and you do. I'm not going to, whatever it is, there's, whatever these things are that you, you say, I'm never doing that again, and then you do. How do you respond in those moments? Will tell you, your moments of failure will tell you more about how you relate to Jesus than your moments of success. In those moments, is your response, I'm so terrible, God must be angry with me, and I now need to rack up sort of enough good days, I need to do some, some penance, I need to do enough kind of put together a string of three or four or five or six or ten or a month or whatever, whatever it is, that the lie that comes in your mind, if I, and if I can kind of be really good and work it up, then, then I, Jesus will kind of welcome me back in. If that's how you relate to Jesus in your sin and your failure, then you haven't yet fully at least embraced the goodness of the gospel. Because in Jesus, once you've been made alive, it's not that your sin and failure doesn't matter, but it's already been dealt with. That's why he died, was to, for those moments, when you blow it. I think sometimes we come in and it's like, well, Jesus paid for all my sins in the past, but, but now that I'm a Christian, I gotta kind of work this up and do it. I'm like, no, every single one of sins that you committed in the past, the ones that you're committing right now, the ones that you're gonna commit this afternoon and tomorrow and next year and, and, and 30 years from now are covered by the blood of the cross. You don't have to earn your way back to him. You just have to plead, Jesus, I need your forgiveness again. Heal me again. Accept me back. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in London in the 50s and 60s and really started to kind of access, was one of the first preachers to really sort of engage this kind of emerging kind of modern culture after World War II he has a great book called Spiritual Depression, and I just want to read you a section. Just, this is a quote from it. I think it's so helpful. He says, to make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. After I've explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say, now are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And they hesitate, and then they say, and then I say, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And so often people say this, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to become a Christian now. And at once I know I've been wasting my breath, they are still thinking in terms of themselves. 
They have to do it. It's on them. It sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. But it's a very denial of the faith. The very essence of Christian faith is to say that he, Jesus, is good enough and I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and saying, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm not good enough. You are denying God and you are denying the gospel. You are denying the very essence of faith and you will never be happy. You think that at your better times, and then again you will find that you are not good at other times and as, as you thought you were, and you will be up and down forever. How can I put it plainly, Joanne says? It isn't a matter, or it says rather, it doesn't matter if you have entered into the depths of hell. Listen to this. It doesn't matter if you are guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God you are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. Because new life is a gift. It isn't something you earn. Jesus is not looking at your tally in order to accept you. Um, Many of you who know me know that I'm a big Ken Burns fan and try to watch everything that he's ever made. Those of you who don't know me, now you know that about me. I love Ken Burns. And his most recent documentary is on the life of Muhammad Ali. And I just was fascinated by this story of Muhammad Ali's life. I mean, he's an unparalleled athlete. and just was blown away watching him in these, in these fights and his speed and his athleticism, just unbelievable. But he also was a beloved human. By the time he got to the end of his life, maybe you remember the, the moment where he lit the Olympic torch. I mean, around the world was a beloved human. And once he had, later in his life, a family actually come all the way from Tanzania to visit him and, and to thank him. And he needed a lot to kind of restore a sense of dignity to many people of color around the world. And he spent a lot of time with them that day and drove him to their hotel and they were going to go back to the airport. And as he was driving back, he had a friend in the car with him who asked him why he had taken so much time with these people he didn't know who just came out of the blue to see him. And Ali said that it was because he believed every person on earth had an angel watching him all the time, marking whether their actions were good and bad. He called it their tallying angel. And he said to this friend, he said, when we die, if we've got more good marks than, we, than bad, we go to paradise. If we've got more bad marks, we go to hell. And he said, I've done a lot of bad things. I've got to keep doing good now. I want to go to paradise. Now, Ali gets part of the story right there because it is true. Jesus is clear that that all of our lives are, are sort of being recorded and will be evaluated. But whether or not we are received into heaven is not a matter of whether our good or ways are bad. Our bad will always far outweigh our good. But whether or not we have placed our belief, our trust in Jesus. It's not a matter of how many push-ups can Bernie do to make himself alive again. He can't do them. Have you been born again? Have you looked to Jesus in faith and said, he is my only hope in life and in death? Because it's his life given to us that makes us alive. And it cost him something, right? Keller, at the end of that talk on this passage of the Gospel Coalition, says this. He says, every child born into the world is being born through the pain and suffering of someone else, the mother. Every one of you is sitting here today because of the pain and suffering of someone else. 
And especially in the time of Jesus, women gave birth not just at the risk of their lives, but in many cases at the cost of their lives. This is the meet-up metaphor that Jesus picks up. He isn't going just to give you life at the risk of his life, at the very cost of his life. He's going to die so that you could be born. Jesus died and rose again so that he could give you his life. He rose again from the grave, defeated death so that you could live now and forever eternal life. Not just, not just a quantity of life, but a new sort of life that begins even now. And joined by trust to the very life of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus lives in you. And Father in heaven, we pray that you would give the gift that you can only give, which is for us to be reborn, to be made new. Would you pour out your spirit on many and draw many to yourself? And would you make us faithful as those who uh, have been given this new birth? Would you make us faithful to love and to pray for and care for those um, who you are seeking to bring new life to? Would we be the vessels? Would you bring new life out of us and that we would be catalysts for new life in others? And now as we turn as well to celebrating communion, this, this Lord's Supper that Jesus gave us, this practice, would we be reminded and nourished and refreshed again in the hope that we have in the new life that we've been given and the promise that can never be broken of your faithfulness to us that ensures our life both now and for eternity. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray.